Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this morning, for this opportunity and for this place to be able to gather and open up your word. We thank you for your word. Lord, that guides us and directs us, that speaks to us, that cuts us, Lord, that convicts us and challenges us. Lord, I pray that we would learn something from you today, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts. We know because we're gathered in your name, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit is among us. So, Lord, I pray that that your spirit would be heavy upon us this morning, Lord. I thank you so much again, and in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, as Dan mentioned, we see that Paul here, he's on his fourth missionary journey. It's so crazy that we call it his fourth missionary journey. It's so different from the other three where he was just kind of deciding where to go, basically deciding where to go. Here now, he's a prisoner of Rome being taken from place to place and in chains. And we saw last week where he went before Felix, the governor at the time of the whole region, and he made his case. He actually had to kind of defend himself against these false accusations that were brought before Felix. And uh, you remember we looked at the the lawyer for the uh, accusers, uh, Tertullus, who came and kind of made all kinds of accusations, didn't have any facts, didn't have any real... uh, um, eyewitnesses or evidence or anything, just accusations to bring before. And, and uh, Paul stands up and he gives an amazing testimony, actually, of, of, of his own life. And, and Felix pretty much does what Felix does, is he puts it off, making a decision. He procrastinates. That's what we said last time, is that Felix was a procrastinator. In fact, what we see is that he decides that he's just going to leave Paul in prison. Well, I mean, at least under arrest, uh, in chains. He's under house arrest. He's going to leave him bound up in chains for two years, for two years. And he keeps going back to him. And, uh, and part of that, yes, I believe, is because um, uh, it says that he thought that Paul may have access to a lot of money, and he was thinking that maybe he could get a bribe, and if he got a bribe from Paul, he would let him out. But I really do feel like there was a part of it, that part of that message got in, and he kept going back. There was something that kept drawing him back to Paul, uh, and, he, and, and, um, and Paul would give him the same message. It says, and we looked at this, that he gave him a, a three, three basic topics. Remember? Three topics. I'm blanking all of a sudden on what they were. (laughs) I know what they are. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And you remember we talked about how those three words really surmise the gospel so well, this idea that, you know, righteousness is the fact that you have to deal with yesterday's sin, the things that you've done. You can't make right on your own, but it is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that you can be seen as forgiven, as, as as your sin being cleansed, washed away. And uh, self-control, this idea that once you do accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and have your sins washed away, the the power of the Holy Spirit, which is self-control, comes upon you um, and gives you the power to be able to live a life according to what the Bible says. And then the judgment to come is the, you know, the, the idea that for every person, there is judgment that will come. If you remember, we looked at this. For the believer, it is judgment unto reward. But for the unbeliever, it will be judgment unto damnation. Those are the two right there. That's the message that he gave to Felix and Drusilla. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Remember, it says in the word here that when Felix heard this idea that you can't be righteous in your own power and there's nothing you can do, there's no rule or ritual or or thing that you can perform to make you righteous, that um, you do not have the kind of self-control that it takes to do that and that judgment is awaiting you when you die. What does it say Felix did? He trembled. He was afraid there was a realization that came over him that he didn't want to admit In fact, he didn't want to admit it so much. He didn't want to deal with it so much so that he says, you know what, I'll talk to you another time. You know what, Paul, maybe we'll come back to this another time when it's convenient. And he does actually come back and come back and come back. But we never see any evidence historically either that Felix did anything other than just go after the money. 
Eventually, you know, Felix is, is called back to Rome because he was a very brutal governor. He was recalled back to Rome and ultimately banished. And uh, you, can, you can look this up, but ultimately he commits suicide because he just can't deal with it. He waited too long. Well, here we have Paul now, two years. Two years he's been in chains. Um, and we're going to see that Paul actually isn't that unhappy about it. Now think about it. Remember we said that Paul may have been chained to Rome, but Paul would look at it as, Rome is chained to me. See, while he's under house arrest, he's chained to a Roman guard for six hours at a time on shifts. And so as he uh, has guests coming in because Felix, you know, told the guards, you know, don't prevent any of his friends coming in and visiting and taking care of him. And as Paul's there, and we know that Paul wrote several of the letters that we read in the New Testament. Um, As he was there, he's got a Roman guard chained to him somewhere. I'm not sure where the chain would have been here, maybe. You know that Paul, when he wasn't sitting there quietly scribbling away when he was writing these letters, you know that. He was dictating letters to a scribe. And so as he's dictating all of these New Testament letters to the churches, he's saying it out loud. Somebody's writing it down. Here's a Roman guard. He's hearing the whole thing the whole time. And then six hours later, another one comes in. He was like, Paul probably was like, I want to make a revision to that letter that I dictated to you before. Read that back to me. You know, and I think that is so amazing when I think how compassionate and how gracious God is. He makes a way for everybody to hear the gospel message, even these Roman guards. Isn't that amazing? I'm so happy about that because he made a way for me to hear it more than once, thankfully, more than once, because it took a number of tries for it to get into me. Where I, and I was just like, Felix, you know what? That's good. I, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll hear it later. I don't need to make that decision now. I, you know, I've got a long life. You know what? When I'm old, when I've lived my life the way I want to live it, when I've done everything that I want to do, then maybe we can talk about this whole accepting Jesus kind of a thing at the end. Or when I'm on my, better yet, when I'm on my deathbed. When I'm on my deathbed, right at death's door, then I'll make that decision and I'll say, you know what, Jesus, I've lived my whole life. Well, please forgive me before I die. I'll accept you now. You can do that. You could actually give that a shot if you want. I don't suggest it. Because how many of you know the day you're going to die? How many of you know the minute? Nobody. Nobody knows except for God. God knows. He actually says that I've, uh, already, I already know how many steps you're going to take. I know when your life ends. You don't. That's why he presents you so many opportunities to make that decision for him because you don't know the end of your life, but he does. Can you imagine he's sitting there and he's like, it's tomorrow. You don't know it, but it's tomorrow. You're going to hear this word. The Bible says that today, somewhere it says, today is the day, the appropriate day. Today is the appropriate day of salvation. Because tomorrow might be your last day. Tomorrow might be all our last days because the Bible also says that he could come back at any time. At any time. And we could all go up unless you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus Christ then you're in big trouble, I'm sorry to say. Here's Paul. Two years. Felix has been replaced by a guy named Festus now, and that's verse 1 of 25. It says, Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up to Caesarea in Jerusalem. The first difference I see between Festus and Felix is that Felix was a procrastinator. Festus was not. Festus, as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, he wait, uh, excuse me, Caesarea, he waits three days and he's off to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the biggest city in his region and the most important area. So he goes immediately to Jerusalem to let everybody know, I'm the new guy in charge. I just want to meet everybody. Immediately he goes up to Jerusalem. And it says, then the high priest and the chief men of Israel informed him against Paul. So he goes up to meet the the leaders of the people there in Jerusalem. And what do they do? They bring up Paul. Let me remind you, two years later, it's been two years that these guys have been sitting there stewing over this Paul, right? Just, I mean, do you know what it means to hold a grudge? Do you know what the word grudge, that's that's not a great word. It sounds nasty, doesn't it? Like, hey, you want a grudge? No, that's. 
I don't want any grudge. I don't know what that is. It, actually, it's a persistent feeling of ill will resulting from a past insult or injury. Has anyone ever held a grudge against you? That doesn't feel too great, right? Because you're like, I, 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 what? Can't you get over it? Get over it. Have you ever held a grudge against somebody? You know they just hurt you so much, and you're like, I, I want them to hurt. I'm going to hold a grudge. I'm going to not forgive. Holding a grudge means you're not forgiving them. That's what it is. Holding a grudge means that you're not forgiving that person. If they're holding a grudge against you, they're not forgiving you. If you're holding a grudge against them, you're not forgiving them. You don't want a grudge. That, that just sounds like such a nasty word. We're going to drop unforgiveness. We're going to just go with grudge. You've got a grudge. You're going to have to get a shirt. Grudge. Do you know what the Bible says about holding a grudge? There's a lot. Look it up. I'm going to give you two, but there's a lot. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love them. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's how that verse ends, by the way. In case you have any uh, misunderstanding of who is saying that, he identifies himself at the end of that verse. He says, you shall not hold a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now maybe we're like, ha ha, but it says sons of your own people. So what about everyone who's not the sons of my own people? I can hold a grudge against them, obviously. Mm, sorry. See, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander. What, anything left there? No. Be put away from you along with malice, in case you thought there was one more. <laughs> Be kind to one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. As you have been forgiven, you are to forgive. There are no grudges in the Christian life. There are no grudges to be held. Now, someone may be holding a grudge against you, and I am sorry for that. I'm sorry that somebody may be holding a grudge against you or with, withholding forgiveness, but it really is such a silly thing to do for us to say, I am not going to give forgiveness. That'll show them. That doesn't show them. Here's the thing with forgiveness. It's like you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. <laughs> That's unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will kill you. It will kill you on the inside. Well, you got these guys, for two years, they're holding a grudge against Paul. They haven't seen or heard from this guy in two years. But I mean, how miserable are their lives? They're just like, we're going to get that Paul. You were going to get them, that Paul. They're just walking around all mad. Paul, Paul. They're waking up at night. Paul! <laughs> You know what Paul's doing? He's writing letters. He's thinking. He's visiting with friends. I'm sure Paul, you get the impression you're going to see right here. When Paul has to give his defense again, he's almost just like, okay, whatever. I'll tell you again. I hadn't thought about it a single day since they were here two years ago. And that is what happens. And you're sitting there going, I'm going to, you know what? I'm not going to forgive that person. That'll really show them. They're just going on about their life. The high priest and the chief men informed against Paul, asking for a favor against him, that, that, that he would summon him to Jerusalem. He's saying, Paul, while they lay in ambush for the, on the road to kill him. So the, these, these guys, these now the chief priests and the chief men of the city, they're talking to, to Festus. Yeah. Um, and they're like, well, you've, you know what? There's this guy, Paul, that you've got up there. You know what? Why don't you bring him down so that we can try him down here again? And, but what does it say? Did they have any, any real, uh, uh, sorry, do they plan on at all having another trial? No. It says that they're lying in wait. They're going to ambush him and kill him. Now, I want you to notice something. This is now escalated because it isn't 
an unruly mob that wants to kill Paul. And it isn't a group of guys who got together and take a vow saying that we're going to ambush Paul. This is the chief priests and the chief men of the synagogue who are now taking up this plan to kill Paul. I'm pretty sure there's a commandment in there that talks about not murdering somebody. Uh, let me just check. <laughs> you would think that these are the guys that would really understand that. But this grudge that they're holding them has poisoned their soul. So that for two years they've been holding on to this. Now this plan of these 40 guys has become their plan. There's their standing before Festus and they are falsely accusing Paul of all these, like, well, you've got this guy up here and he did all these. They're, you know what we find out is they're not even specific at this point to Festus. They're just saying, he's a bad dude. You've got him up there. He's in prison for a reason. You know, Festus, you know, you should bring him down here so that we can have a trial. You know, but they don't even tell him what the charges are because later on he's going to say, well, it, you know, all the things they said, that's not what I thought they were going to say. So they're not even clear with him right here. All they're saying is, you've got this guy, he's bad, he's done all these really bad things. They're falsely accusing Paul right here. Have you ever been falsely accused of anything? Anybody ever accused you of something that you're like, I, I, I didn't do that thing that you're saying, I didn't do that. It feels horrible. Anybody here not been falsely accused? It's okay. I mean, you know, maybe you live in a bubble. I don't know. <laughs> so, but I got news for you. Even if you could stand here and say to me, I've never been accused of something that I haven't done, um, you have been. See, in Revelation, it refers to Satan going in before God day and night, accusing the brothers and the sisters. That's you and me. And Satan is going in and saying, look at this. They did that again. Look, they do it every day. Oh, yeah, they come back. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. But look, they do it every single day. That's the person you sent your son to die for? God, what are you thinking? Every day he comes in, and sometimes he is falsely accusing. Sadly, though, sometimes those accusations aren't false, are they? Sometimes those accusations are true. Sometimes you are doing that thing that you know you're not supposed to do on a regular basis. Yes, you're going and you're saying, oh, Jesus, forgive me. Guess what he does? See, that's the good news. John writes in his letter that we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ. An advocate, if you look that word up, it means a counselor, an intercessor. You basically have the best defense lawyer going on your behalf. Satan is going in and he's accusing you day and night before God. And Jesus is standing up in front of you and saying, yes, but they're, they're mine. They're mine. And the father looks at Jesus and he says, okay. And Satan storms out. I imagine, I don't know. <laughs> Verse 4, Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. And, and when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews, uh, when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Once again, and we've seen this over and over again, Luke, who's writing Acts, wants you to know and wants everybody to know that every time they brought complaints against Paul, that he was innocent of the charges that they were bringing. In verse 8, it says, and he answered for himself, this is Paul speaking, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the right, do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Oh, man, if you're Paul, you're just like, come on. I mean, how many times do I have to stand before some ruler at this point and say, all the things that they're saying that I've done, false. 
They don't have any evidence. They don't have any eyewitnesses. They can't prove anything. Everything they say that I've done that was wrong, I haven't done. Yet you've got another guy coming up, Festus, saying, you know what, Paul, would you be willing to go with me to Jerusalem so you can be you know, examined again there? And Paul is going to say, enough. Enough. Now, maybe it's because he was uh, sure that if he went, he wouldn't get a fair trial. Maybe he had some information that God had given him that said there's still an ambush waiting in for you. Maybe he was just sick and tired of it. Could be all or any of those. <clears throat> so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment. You know, I almost said Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that, you know, Caesar, Caesar, we get those mixed up. Where I ought to be judged, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as, as you very well know. For, I am an, uh, for if I am offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. And so he says, look, I admit if I did something wrong and I deserve death, then I deserve death. But I haven't done anything. You all know it. He's pointing at them at this point. You all know it. No longer will I be dragged here and there in front of the Jews. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, as a Roman citizen, he had this right to appeal to Caesar at this point to say, you know what? I don't feel like I'm getting a fair shake. It's been two years. I haven't complained. I've been here. Uh, I've done everything you wanted me to do. I stand up and defend myself every time you ask me to. That's it. I appeal to Caesar. It's like he's saying, all right, we're taking the court. We're going to the Supreme Court. It was every Roman citizen's right to appeal to Caesar and to have that right granted. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, who had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now when I say that, how many of you in your head go, to Caesar you shall go, to Caesar you shall go. They're all going to Caesar. And that's what he says. Fine, you appeal to Caesar, then you will go to Caesar. It's more complicated than that, though. We'll see. <clears throat> After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, Agrippa was what they called a client king. All right? So he was actually the king over Jerusalem, but he was allowed to be king by the Roman government. Okay, so he was still under the rule, technically, of Caesar. He was called the client king. And uh, so he was there. Now, Agrippa um, is the last of the Herodian dynasty, right? All of the Herods. Herod the Great that, that um, killed all of the babies when Jesus was born. That was his great-grandfather. Uh, his father was the... This is where I get these two mixed up, so forgive me if I mix them up. But his father killed... John the Baptist, and his uncle killed James, the brother of John, or it's the other way around, and I can never remember, but it's one of those. But, you know, the Herods, that's what they did, and he's in this line. He is one of those Herods, the last of the Herodian dynasty, okay? Well, he shows up with his wife, Bernice. Now, the reason I say that was because Bernice also happened to be his sister, ill. yes. <laughs> Now, this isn't one of those cases where people are like, oh, but it was different times. No, everyone thought this was gross. Everyone thought this was way out of line. But Bernice was his sister. She also happened to be the sister of Drusilla. Remember Felix's wife from a couple weeks ago. Remember, Drusilla was the most beautiful woman in the world, and then you had Bernice, <laughs> who apparently was also very beautiful, but not as beautiful as Drusilla. And I'm thinking, Drusilla, Bernice, those really aren't names that we've really embraced anymore. Really, you, th you, know, you don't find a lot of young, you know, young girls named Bernice or Drusilla. So if anybody out there still childbearing age, <laughs> I ask that maybe you consider Bernice or Drusilla. Just throw it in there. Now, Bernice, she was a real character on her own. At 14 years old, she uh, was married off to a 44-year-old guy named... Uh, I know it. Marcus Julius Alexander, uh, 44 years old. Before they could consummate that marriage, he died. Yeah, well, 
Um, she was then married off to her uncle, where she uh, was married, married to him for several years and had um, some children. Well, after he died, she went to live with her brother. I guess she was already okay with the whole incestual relationship with her brother, so she went and became the sister wife of her brother, Agrippa. Now, after a time, she left her brother husband uh, and went and married a Cilician king, but that didn't last. So after that, she left that guy and she came back to her brother Agrippa. And that's where we find her right now at this time in her life. This is the second time that she's back married to her brother. Um, and they're a couple. And it's a whole huge scandal uh, in, all, in all this time. You can read in uh, historical writings of Josephus as well. They're talking about how the, the Jewish nation was appalled by this. Um, and everybody else, see, after she leaves Agrippa, after the fall of, of, of um, uh, the, the Jewish revolt, 66 and 70 AD, um, she leaves Agrippa and goes to become the lover of Titus, who was the governor of Jerusalem at the time. Um, and as he begins to rise to power to become Caesar, he puts her away because he doesn't want to be connected to her scandalous past. So this is what we've got, Agrippa and Bernice coming in now to greet Festus, this new governor of the region. And so they come to uh, talk to him, and they're um, there. And it says that in verse 14, when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, they had come together without any delay. The next day I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such the things as I suppose. You see right there, he's saying the things that I thought they were going to accuse him of, they didn't say anything about those things. That's not at all what I thought they were going to say. So they obviously didn't mention any of those things when he was in Jerusalem. And they were trying to convince him to bring Paul there. But had some questions about him, uh, against him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who had died whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? Um, see, you have a case where Festus here, he has a little bit of knowledge about Jesus. Well, there was a guy named Jesus, uh, but he died. This guy, Paul, says that he's alive or that he rose again and that he's something. I'm thinking, you know what? That Actually, that one little statement, Festus is a lot of people. Festus actually represents a lot of people there. A lot of people have a little knowledge about Jesus. A lot of people have a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of understanding, but they don't have the full, complete understanding of Jesus. We were talking about this on Wednesday night with the Practical Christian Living class, the, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. A lot of people think, oh, Jesus, yeah. I, well, you can't deny that he was alive. He's historical. You can look him up. He lived. He did things. In fact, last night I was reading in Josephus' history that Josephus even recorded the fact that he was the first century Jewish historian, said there was a man, it was Jesus, and not just that he lived, but he did many wondrous things, and that he had a great following of people. And after he died, Josephus writes that even the people that were following before still followed him after. I said, a lot of people think, well, Jesus, you know, he lived. He did some great things. He was a really good teacher, a really good man. A lot of people think that Jesus was a good man. And that's it. Good teacher, good man. But see, Jesus doesn't allow you to think that in his word. The full understanding of Jesus is that Jesus claimed to be more than a man. Jesus claimed actually to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, if Jesus claimed to be God, that means that Jesus was either God, crazy, or a liar. If you're crazy or you're a liar, are you good? Do you qualify as a good man? 
I don't think so. I don't know anybody would say, that guy is the biggest liar in history, but he's a good guy. <laughs> Festus, like many people, had a, a small understanding of who Jesus was, but not a complete. Actually, what he didn't have was an understanding that Jesus rose from the dead. And therein lies the power over death and the forgiveness of sins. Because if Jesus didn't die and raise from the dead, then he didn't defeat sin. He didn't do it. And, it, and Paul would say, if there was no resurrection, then all of our faith is in vain. You, you can't just go out being satisfied with a little bit of knowledge about who Jesus Christ is. It's not enough. You need more. Well, let me tell you something. Festus is going to get more. What you do with it at that point, just as it is in his life, is up to you. What you do with that understanding, then, once you have the full understanding. And verse 20 says, And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be, appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Ah, it's a good sign. First step. I wrote a little note right here. First step. See, he heard a little bit about what was being talked about, and he says, you know what? I want to hear this for myself. I want to hear more. That's a great first step. If you're here and you just have a little bit of understanding about Jesus and all of a sudden you're thinking, you know what, I, I want to hear more about this. Great, great first step. I want to hear more. This, you're going to get it. You're going to get more. So Festus said to Agrippa, tomorrow you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice, you see that, you know, he's not a procrastinator. You see what I'm saying? He's like, you know what? You want to hear him? Good. Next day, you're going to do it. We're going to hear him. The next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the appointed men of the city at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. Two things that blew me away just in that verse. I know because I read ahead. <laughs> Paul is going to share an amazing story of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming up. So I know that Agrippa and Bernice and Festus are all going to get to hear the gospel message. You know why that's so cool? It's because, well, Agrippa and Bernice, we just looked there, they're not great, morally upstanding people. But the gospel is for everyone, not just the, 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 the cleaned up well-respected people of the community, but even the grossly immoral, even those who are filthy, anybody is, the gospel is for anybody. In fact, there's someone said a saying to me the other day that Jesus didn't clean the fish before he caught him. Get it? Catch the fish, then clean them. He makes a way for even the most morally defunct person to be able to hear the gospel message. Second thing is, look who's there. Yes, Festus. Yes, Agrippa. Yes, Bernice. But the place is filled with all of the, the upstanding, important men and most likely women of the area all filling up this auditorium. I mean, uh, you can actually go here and see it holds like 25,000 people. It's just full. And I'm thinking Paul's like back there. He's <laughs> getting ready. He's got his water bottle up on the podium. Of course, he's in chains as he comes walking out, as we'll see. But Paul is thinking, oh, man, what an opportunity. And I'm just blown away that God says, you know what? Even the worst offenders, they get to hear the gospel, too. Boy, am I glad for that. Right? I mean, I was a, I mean, I, you know, wasn't that bad. <laughs> I wasn't bad as some of y'all, I'm sure. I don't know. I don't know. But I wasn't great. I had plenty of moral missteps in my pre-Jesus life. 
you know what, I'm so glad that I heard and had the opportunity to hear that gospel message more than one time. It took more than once for it to get in or for me to let it in. But here he says, you know what, I'm going to make a way for everybody. Even the most morally corrupt person gets a chance at salvation. Because that's the God, that's the God that we serve. That's the God that we love. That's the God that loves us. You know, he said uh, in his word, it says, even when you were my enemy, I died for you. Who does that? Only the perfect God of love. <clears throat> and Festus said, and, and again, all pomp and circumstance, uh, King Agrippa and all the men who are present with us, you see this man before whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, but uh, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination, I may have something to write, for it seems unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's saying, in order for me to send him as a prisoner to Caesar, I have to have some charge to write down, and I can't find anything to write down. And it would be a big mistake for him to waste Caesar's time sending him somebody that he suspected and even knew was innocent, but, but was feeling pressured to do it. And so he's making this big kind of plea before Agrippa, saying, maybe you could find something that I could write down so that I could send this guy off to Caesar and be done with it. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hands and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all things of which I am accused by the Jews. You have to understand that we learn later that Paul is in chains in this situation. He's coming out. And wherever the chains are, he's in chains. It says that he stands up before everybody and he lifts up his hands. You see that? Lifts up his hands, reminding everybody, I'm a prisoner here. But even though I'm a prisoner chained to Rome, I'm happy to be here to speak for myself. It would be like, what? Paul, really? You're happy, to, you're happy to answer for yourself? You know what it kind of struck me is like, we know that Paul, again, is thinking, look at all these people. I got a message ready to go. It's called the gospel. So he's saying, I may be in chains, but I'm happy. I'm happy not because I get to defend myself, not because I get to speak in defense of myself, but because I get to speak for myself and I'm going to speak the gospel, right? I'm not going to speak uh, to defend myself necessarily. I'm going to speak for myself, and I'm going to share with you the gospel message. Especially because you are experts in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear, my, hear me patiently. That's Paul's way of saying, this is going to be long. I have a message, but it's going to be long. <laughs> You'll notice, if you look back, they did not turn on my timer today. So we're good. No timer. Doesn't exist. And Paul goes on, he says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent with, from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, and all the Jews know. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of my religion, I lived a Pharisee. He says, many of the people that accuse me know who I am. They know that I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. They know that I was uh, living my life to the strict rules that all the Pharisees are supposed to live. And he kind of throws in a dig. He goes, if any of them were actually here at this time to tell you that, they're not there. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, one of the things that he's doing, which is so clever, he knows that Agrippa is an expert in Jewish culture and history. Well, he knows, and he's going to reference it a couple of times, that when he says, and you know these things, Agrippa, you know this to be true. You know the prophecies about the Messiah. He's saying that I lived my life according to the hope 
that the prophets and our fathers told us that a Messiah was going to come. He knew this before his conversion, all right? Every Jew knew that the Messiah was going to come. They just didn't know who or when. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to obtain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Again, he's talking about this idea that these were all the things that were prophesied that the Messiah would do. And he knows that Agrippa is an expert in knowing these things. He's saying the very things that we all knew were going to happen, I now believe that they were, they've come true in the person of Jesus Christ. That's really what I'm being accused of having a hope in the Messiah, which is something that we have all had hope in, Agrippa and every Jew. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. It's so interesting. You see, he thought that it was his duty to push back Jesus, to push back anything that had to do with Jesus. He thought that he was doing what God wanted him to do for a time. He thought that. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. There's a couple of interesting things there. He refers to every single follower of Jesus Christ as what? A saint. A saint. I totally get that. I mean, no, that, don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> That's not to be like, well, of course we're saints. No, I mean, like, I don't have any confusion, confusion around the fact that Paul says, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you're considered a saint, all right? But maybe you were brought up in the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church separates regular people from saints. And so... Um, if that's your case, and if you, have a, if you have some confusion around who are saints and who aren't saints, um, you could say that there are, 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 this is a horrible joke, two, two kinds of people, the saints and the ain'ts. <laughs> the saints are those who are following Jesus. That's what the Bible says. What the Catholic Church said, if you're going to be a saint, um, there's a process. Um, you have to be dead for five years. No, so this is for real. I, I walked through this process. You have to be dead for five years first. You can get a waiver. They can give you a waiver. Um, I, listen, I, I, don't, I, I don't say these things because I'm poking fun at the Catholic Church. I really am trying to explain to make sure there's no confusion. But when you read some of these things, it does make you laugh a little bit. To think that in order to be considered a saint, you have to be dead five years. So that's not so unusual. But it's what happens next. See, your name is brought up, and then a council gets together to examine your life to see if you led a life of holiness that was an exemplary uh, example of virtue to everybody that inspired people. That, those are good things. The, the dead part, not so good, but the, the, the life of virtue, that's a good thing. Did you live a life that was virtuous, that led other people into a, a, a holy life? Now, this is where it starts to get weird. Um, you have to then perform a miracle. This is postmortem. So you've been dead for five years. Someone's brought your name up as a life of lived of virtue. And now, after five years' time, you have to have performed a miracle that can be verified. Um, and the way that works is that um, people, it says, and I, again, I'm taking this right off of a, a Catholic explanation website that says um, people uh, will pray to that particular person who's been dead asking for intercession. Um, and if that person then is able to intercede and cause a healing to happen in the life of somebody, then that healing or miracle is examined. And if it can be found to be attributed to the person that had been dead for five years that they were praying to, then, then that's their first miracle. Now, um, then you need a second one. The second miracle... Um, it takes you to the next level. And it's all levels of sainthood, like uh, beatification and then canonization. The canonization is the second miracle, again, that many people pray to that person who's been dead for five years, and then that person intercedes on their behalf, and then a miraculous thing happens, a healing or of some kind that's then verified. Now, here's the really scary part um, for me, is that, yes, they're praying to someone who was just a person who lived a virtual life a virtuous life um, for intercession. 
But see, the Bible says that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. The only one, and that, I didn't make that up. That's not in the Protestant Bible, that's in the Bible. One mediator between God and man. See, well, I, I think that it's dangerous for us to be praying to anybody else but Jesus. Because then who is it you're praying to? The second thing that's most concerning about that whole process to me is that, yes, they may say, well, we're not praying for them for the miracle. We're praying for them to intercede on behalf of the person. But the miraculous act is actually attached to that dead person, not to Jesus. That's frightening to me. Now, if all that's true, then the person is considered a saint. But see, what Paul says is that every single person that was following Jesus Christ, they were a saint. So that if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Paul would consider you a saint. Take that that for how you want it, but you're a saint if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says that I shut them up in prison, I cast my vote against them. You know, that one line right there where I cast my vote against them is what leads me to believe that Paul was actually a member of the Sanhedrin as well because he had a vote in whether they lived or died. And he would cast his vote against them every time. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Out of everything, I believe that this was the thing that most kept Paul up at night after he became a follower. Because he's saying, I made them blaspheme Jesus Christ, the very one that they had given their lives to. I made them do that. See, he could, he could reconcile in his mind, well, at least if I voted that they be executed, they were executed and they went to be with the Lord. But I made them stand there and I made them blaspheme Jesus. Man. And I punished them often. Now, verse 12, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and the commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to get kick against the goads. Just to clear this up, Saul and Paul Same guy, right? Does everybody get that? His name was always Saul or Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. It wasn't a switch when he got converted. I know a lot of people think that, but what's not the case? Um, He is Saul to many of the Hebrews. He is Paul when he's in a Roman surrounding. And so here, the light coming from heaven refers to him as Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against goats. How many times, even in the study of Acts, have we read this particular passage, you know, four or five times by now? Do you know what struck me this time? The light from heaven, which we know is Jesus, speaking down to Paul in a a light that's brighter than the noonday sun, doesn't say, stop persecuting me. He says, why Are you persecuting me? Do you think God doesn't know why? Do you think think Jesus is like, why is that guy so mean to me? Do you remember in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit and they wandered off and hid because they now were, they were uh, aware of their nakedness and sin? And it says that God called out to them, was like, Adam, where are you? Do you think God didn't know where he was? He created the garden. He knew every square inch. He knows everything all the time. Do you think God didn't know? No, he wanted Adam to confess to him. There's a story about blind Bartimaeus in in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is walking um, uh, out of Jericho and blind Bartimaeus uh, hears that Jesus is coming. He calls out and he says, says, "Uh, Son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone standing around is like, shut up, shut up. And so he calls out even louder. There's a whole big lesson right there, oh, by the way, of someone, like you speak up for Jesus and they're like, be quiet, speak louder, speak up. 
He's like, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stops. He says, bring him over to me. And all, those, all the shushers were like, hey, good news. He said, come over. And they go over. And, they get, they, and, and, and here they bring over this blind guy. And what does Jesus say? What do you want me to do for you? I Everybody's standing around going, he's blind. <laughs> Obviously, he wants to be. But Jesus, do you think Jesus didn't know what blind? Everybody knew what blind Bartimaeus was. But Jesus wanted him to tell him, confess it. I want you to heal me. Do you think Jesus didn't know why Paul was persecuting him? Of course he knew. This was a moment that he wanted Paul to reach inside and examine himself. Because look what he says. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you know what a goad is? It's a sharp stick that a shepherd would use either on sheep or ox when they weren't going in the right direction. They would just jab them with that. And it didn't you know, injure them badly, but it was enough to get them to change direction, to go in a direction. The, the sheep were going this way. Like, nope, nope, nope. The ox would go a certain way, and they would jab the ox with the goad. And it would get them to change direction. And he's saying, it's hard. He doesn't even ask this, does he? He doesn't say, is it hard to kick against the goats? Of course it is. That's obvious. It's hard to kick against the goats. He's saying, Paul, there's something inside of you that is telling you the way you've been going is wrong, and yet you keep kicking against it. Isn't it killing you? It's hard. It's hard. Here's the thing. Like, What is it? We don't even hear about Paul until after Stephen, right? Stephen comes and he gives this incredible testimony in front of the council that we know Paul was at. It says that he literally was there holding everybody's coat while they stoned him. We know from that point on, Paul becomes this like crazy zealot. There was some kind of switching point in his mind that I believe that he was wrestling with. This is what I was brought up to do and to know, but there's something inside of me now that I'm wrestling with that's contrary to that. This Jesus that they keep talking about, these things that I keep hearing about, the work that he's doing, this feeling inside, there's something to it, but I'm a Pharisee. And no, I can't go that way. And he's pushing back against, he's pushing back against the truth that has now been implanted inside him. And he's kicking against the goad. And Jesus says that very thing. The thing that you know to be true, you are kicking against. Why? It's a turning point in Paul's life. We saw that a couple weeks ago where we went through this again. It's a moment where he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And it's just like, you can see the move, if it was of a movie, all these flashbacks coming to Paul. All the prophecies he ever read, 351 prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament coming true in the person of Jesus Christ. The words of Stephen, the things that he knew, all of this flashing into his mind and him thinking, that's wrong. I thought I knew about Jesus. I thought I knew everything about him. That's wrong. Paul then stops kicking against the goats, and he lets Jesus in, and it's an amazing moment. And I'm sure that some of you can relate to this experience. Through your life, you were kicking against what you knew to be true, but you were like, but I don't want that. I want what I want. I want to be the captain of my own ship. And you're kicking against the goads, and finally you were able to let that go. But some of you haven't. There's some people here or, or watching us that are still kicking against the goats. They are wrestling inside with what they know to be true, but they don't want it to be true. And you're wrestling and you're wrestling. If Paul were here, he would say, you just stop kicking against the goads. It hurts. It's painful. He says, so... I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both to the things which you have seen and the things which you will, I will yet reveal. 
I will deliver you from the Jews and the people as well as from the Gentiles whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from their darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. It's happening right then, that very thing. He's saying, I'm going to send you to the Jews. You'll stand before the Jews and you will open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who are snatched, sacrificed by faith in me. It's incredible because as Paul is literally telling them this is what happened, that is what he is doing in that very moment, which gives me hope to believe that there are people in that auditorium that actually are going to hear these words and will believe. And they will have their sins forgiven. Do you know what Paul points out right there? There are two sides to the fence. Kingdom of heaven and hell. Those are the power of Satan, the kingdom of heaven. Those are the two things. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. The Bible says, Jesus would say, if you are not with me, you're against me. He doesn't say we can be friends he says, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. He doesn't make room for middle ground. So your question to you, to my question to you is, are you with him? Because if you're not, you're against him. You have to come to grips with that right now. You have to say, well, am I with or am I against? Paul would write in Colossians that you were once alienated, enemies of God. So it's not just, well, I'm not with Jesus. The Bible says if you're not with Jesus, then you're God's enemy. That's the reality. You're, you're with Jesus or you're God's enemy. So you can walk out of here today um, without hearing any of this. Uh, I hope you hear this, that if you're not with Jesus, you're God's enemy. That's a serious thing to consider as you walk out of here, and coupled with the fact that today could be your last day on earth. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, not the Roman army, by the way, to this day I stand witnessing, witnessing both to small and great, saying, no other thing than those which the prophets of the Moses said would come. So the Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead and would proclaim the light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. He is saying, you know this, Agrippa, that the Messiah will do this. Jesus did that. Now, thus he made his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Okay, so imagine Paul, he's giving this defense, and it is like intense at this point, intense. He's looking right at Agrippa. He's saying, you know these things to be true. You know these things to be true. Festus now is like, yeah, he's just like, oh, man, this is weird. So he goes, Paul, you're crazy. That's my, this is my own, uh, my own translation. You're talking crazy talk. He says, you're Paul, you've lost your mind. You studied so much. You, you read so much that you've just lost your mind. And that doesn't surprise me. Because listen, look, look. Festus has heard Paul talk about a, a guy that came and he lived in the area. It was there for three years or so um, that he healed people miraculously, that people followed him all around. Um, that he was a really good guy and he never did anything bad. But then the Romans got a hold of him and they crucified him and they killed him. But then he rose from the dead and everybody saw him and they hugged him and he ate fish and all this stuff. And then um, he got on a cloud and he went up into heaven. And of course, Festus would hear that and be like, mm, that seems a little crazy to me. 
right? Again, it doesn't surprise me because it says in Colossians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The, the things of the cross are foolishness to those who are perishing, to those people who don't believe. The, it does sound crazy. There was a guy that was killed and then raised from the dead. But here's the thing. Do I think that Festus really thought Paul was crazy? No. Because he ultimately sends him on to, to Caesar, and he would never send a crazy man to Caesar. Never. He would never do that. See, the thing is, the words of Paul were breaking in and convicting him in his soul. And what was he doing? Deflecting it. He was just jumping in saying, Paul, uh, Paul you're crazy. But the Holy Spirit is just pounding on the outside of Festus saying, Festus, Festus, listen to these words. They're true. And Festus does not want it to be true. And he's like, ah, that's crazy. We're done. We're done. We're done. I don't want to talk about this. And Paul says, but I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speaking the words of truth and reason for the king before whom I am also speaking freely, knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention since the thing was not done in a corner. He's saying, this guy right over here, Agrippa, he knows that all these things in, in the life of Jesus took place. He knows it. Ask him. Ask Agrippa if you don't believe me. Then Paul looks at Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Whew. Man, can you do that? And you know, it's one thing to sit and talk to people like, oh, this is my faith, and I believe in Jesus, and I believe that, you know, he died for my sins. And then it's a whole new level to be like, do you want to pray for Jesus right now? Can you do that? Is that too scary? <laughs> Remember the Godmobile? <laughs> That was part of it. You walk people through a couple of pages. This is what Jesus did for you. He died for you so that you could go to heaven. And then the last part of it was, do you want to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now? Paul says, Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. I believe there was a long pause right there. A long pause where Paul and Agrippa are just like looking at each other. And Paul is saying, I know you believe what the prophets said would happen. You know that none of this happened in a corner, in a secret. You know. Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian, Paul. You almost got me. I thought about it for a second there. But then look at all I have to give up. Look at all that I have. I've, I'm king. I'm arraigned in beautiful clothes. I'm married to my sister. <laughs> Why would I want to give all of that up? And sadly, it's the same now for a lot of people. Hopefully not the married to your sister part. <laughs> but many people will say, but look at all I have. Why would I want to give all of this up? The ironic part here is that Agrippa, well, let me just go on because I'm going to finish this. He says, and Paul said, I would, I would to God that not only you, but also all whom hear me today might become both among and altogether such as I am, except for the chains, he says. He says, yes. I would have you become a Christian, Agrippa, but not just you. Everybody who has heard this message today, that you would all become. In fact, I'm a little surprised that he said, except for the chains, because really what Paul would say is, I would have all of you become a prisoner, but not of Rome, of Christ, as I am. I mean, Paul preaches this incredible message. Here's the irony. Paul is the one that's on, def on de the defense, but what he did, ironically, is turn the whole thing upside down once again. So now it's Paul presenting his case, and Festus and Agrippa are now on the defense. They are now convicted. Only it's not a conviction that is brought by man. 
It's a conviction that's brought on by the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. Your best defense against that conviction, surrender. Surrender. Because the sentence is a life sentence, but it's amazing. It's an amazing sentence. Let's talk. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. I thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you for the patience of all those here, Lord, who just sit through this. Lord, I pray that something lands on the hearts of those who you had ordained to be here to hear this today. Lord, I thank you for your word and how you preserved it for us. I thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die for my sins. Lord, I thank you for being my heavenly father. I just, I love you, Lord. Lord, today is one of those days that I just want to be close and snuggle up. Lord, forgive me for tomorrow, Lord, when I will be faced with the regular stuff, Lord. Let tomorrow be a day that I start with you as well. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.